0: I <laughs> think uh. <laughs> <Anyway. laughs> gun sure looks deadly, but it's not the least bit deadly unless I point it at someone and pull the trigger. Gentlemen, this is Democracy
1: Manifest. Hello everybody and welcome back to Repeal the 20th Century and with me I have Dr. Chris Coyne with me. Would you like to introduce yourself?
0: Hi Peyton, uh, my name is Chris Coyne. I'm a professor of economics at George Mason University.
1: Yeah, I uh, I appreciate you coming on. Um, I know we had touch base at uh, the recent Ron Paul anatomy of the S- police state event. And um, you gave a really great talk about uh, militarism and its effects abroad and at home it is particularly what made me interested because I think a lot of the time when people talk about being anti-war, anti-foreign intervention, um, they kind of miss the mark um, when it comes to, giving the case to the average american because i think the average american as much as they do have some level of empathy it, it it doesn't work to just say how you know this is affecting people in other countries and how we're killing you know innocent people they can't understand it because they can't really see it that, that's not their day-to-day but when we talk about what these policies do here at home i think that really hits hard um more than just like giving numbers of spending. And I think you did a really great job in that talk. So uh, first I wanted to start off with just saying, with um, asking about, you know, what is the the main problem with militarism uh, for, for us at home? Like, what does this create?
0: Well, thank you. Um, and I appreciate those kind words and the opportunity to talk about this. So First of all, I I think you're certainly right that what's called defense or the national security state or the military, it it has a special place in many Americans' hearts, (laughs) meaning that even if, you know, on the traditional right, they're very skeptical of government planning, whether it's healthcare, education, or whatnot, but they're very sympathetic to to the military doing things or the national security state. Those on the left tend to at least purport to be concerned with the the vulnerable people in society looking out for the little person. They're, they're worried about corporate power, corporate welfare and whatnot, but they too are very sympathetic to the military. So there's, there's a lot of bipartisan kind of support on this. And, and the problem is, I think, that that overlooks and runs the risk of neglecting the real costs of the military in a large national security state at home, you use the term militarism. Militarism, the way I think about it, is the elevation of the military means of organization, the military means of thinking, the military means of operation uh, above other institutions and ways of living. And if I had to summarize the main takeaway, it would be this. You cannot have a large scale national security state that is proactive abroad and not have it come home and not have it operate at home. And the reason is pretty straightforward, which is in order to carry out a large scale foreign policy that is characterized by militarism, you need a large scale government because government carries it out. It's just like any other government program. But the difference is that it has weapons. It has weapons that can kill people, weapons that can surveil people and so on. And so the, the very operation of that apparatus requires an apparatus. And that apparatus exists domestically, it both where it's housed, but also how it operates. And so that's the that's the the overarching point. And it's like, okay, well, how does this happen? So why should we be concerned about this? Well, if you think about it, the the kind of when I think about this in in, in, in several very brief steps, but I think and we can talk more about talk more about them if it interests you, but just to lay them out. I think the first kind of foundational tool or, or condition that allows the national security state to operate domestically is citizen fear and uh, indifference or acquiescence, meaning that citizens are very worried. And, and of course, they, we are all, Americans are taught this from a young age, that the state is meant to protect us. And even if you think government should be limited on other margins, the, the military is a necessity and that there's threats, uh, 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 threats abound both internationally and domestically. And so the source of, of our liberty and freedom and protection is the state. And so that combination of, of fear of threats combined with acquiescing to the state because we view it as the source of order and protection is number one. That opens the door to everything else. Then, Then from there, you get opportunism, which is that those in political power, once you grant them, the power to do things in the name of protecting you can also utilize that power to pursue their own narrow interests, whatever those might be. And those vary greatly from person to person. What else happens? You get the centralization of power. The national government uh, necessarily gets a lot more power over our lives because, again, the national government runs the national security state. It's almost true by definition, but again, we overlook the consequences of that. And then, of course, the other features are advances in technology, and so, just like you and I are able to have this conversation, even though we're geographically distant, because of great advances in technology, we can also be monitored right now. And so, members of the government can easily listen into this conversation or anything else that we do. And so, technology can be a, a double-edged sword, depending on who is wielding control over it. Uh, and then the final is that uh, final point is that um, you know, citizen ideology shifts through time, and when you get introductions of new forms of Militarism and state power, they become a normal part of life. You know, the way I like to, to, by way of example, to illustrate this is for those who are either born after the September 11th attacks and the war on terror or who were very young at that time, when they go through airport security in America, they'll never know how it was prior to 9 11. It's normal for them. That just becomes a normal part of life. And that might seem to many to be like, oh, well, that's the big deal. Well, it's not just that you start multiplying that across things and you can see how behaviors that would have previously been viewed as troublesome, obnoxious, illegal are now just like ah that's just how things are. Uh, and very slowly government control over our lives can expand and creep up on us without people even realizing that. And so those are kind of the foundational conditions and then of course we we can, Study and think about different manifestations of actual expansions and state power domestically from there. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, I, I think you give a very succinct uh, explanation of kind of this general idea that we're going to get into and get into the meat of bones of. But uh, that that is something that I think like is missing from a lot of uh, anti foreign intervention uh, activism is is kind of just talking about these domestic effects because I think that is what hits home with people. It it certainly hit home with me when I was becoming, you know, a very anti-foreign interventionist person. But uh, I want to talk about some of these specific powers that you mentioned that are created by this militarism and and just get into some of the ones um, that you think are particularly uh, troublesome and just talk about the details of those.
0: Sure. well, Well, I'll start with the most... Egregious case, in, in my view, or perhaps most el- evident one, even though it's hidden, unless you it's evident if you pay attention to it, which is a surveillance state. Uh, and, and again, you know, the fascinating part of this is that most Americans don't think of their government as, um, you know, a police state. It, it, when, if I said to, to, to kind of the modal, the, the average American, you know, what's a police state, they would say North Korea, they would say China, maybe. Uh, and of course, there are. Points to that, that. In other words, that's an accurate rendition on certain margins. Uh, but the national security state powers of the American government are vast, and, and most Americans don't realize it or, or perhaps don't care to realize it. But I really think the surveillance state in the history of it captures the essence of a lot of the points we were just discussing. And so, you know, the the first thing is the the surveillance state in, in the United States goes back to the. Um, American-Philippine War in the late 1800s. That's when it started, um, the origins of it. That was the first war where the US government actually invested significant resources, not just in physical violent conflict, which of course they did against the insurgents, but also in gathering um, significant amounts of information on insurgents, about their finances, about their personal lives and so on, in order to use it to manipulate people. And so there's a guy by the name of, of Ralph Van Diemen who led this charge. And then after he was done the Philippines, he came back to America and agitated to set up a similar apparatus at home, which he was eventually able to do uh, because of, of World War One. And, and that kind of created space for him to set up that apparatus for operation both on foreign soil, but also domestically. And uh, you know then if you if you fast forward um, and, and there's a lot more that we could talk about in terms of historical detail, but I'll, I'll fast forward. You know, a lot of this came to light in the 1960s when um, it was revealed through a, a, a reporter by the name of she- Seymour Hirsch. Um, you can um, look up his work, and, and, and it was uh, published in the New York Times uh, head, front page about the CIA, the FBI, Uh, and and other organizations violating their charters by surveilling people on domestic soil, uh, surveilling Americans. And and the main people who are being surveilled are, or were, excuse me, uh, civil rights uh, activists and anti-war activists, as well as supposed communists. And so the justification for this was, well, these people are extremists, they're radicals, kind of sounds like the way people talk now, by the way, so that's nothing new where you try to divide people who don't agree with your view into their extremists. And the government needed to secretly surveil and control them in the name of the greater good, for stability, for order, and so on. And so this led to a a massive backlash against these um, agencies, Uh, led to something called the Church Committee. By the way, one of the reasons uh, American politicians actually cared about this Cause now of course they just acquiesce as well for the most part was because they were also being surveilled it was revealed and of course then all of a sudden it's a big issue for them because because their calls and activities are being surveilled by the security state in any case you know the some called the church committee and the church committee in the 70s uh the reports are all available online but they basically point out like look this this apparatus is unchecked and it's acting like it would act in a totalitarian society it's it, this is not consistent with certainly not the constitution and certainly not notions of kind of liberal democracy that most people have uh and again this was front page news for a while there were some changes made something called the fisa court was introduced uh and then people forgot about it like they often do and it just went away and then it came to light again uh in in the war on terror and and edward snowden uh it was a major factor a major major reason why um he revealed the illegal surveillance operations and and the scale and scope of the operations or, or a slice of those operations because there's a lot more beyond what he revealed to the American people. And what strikes me is that in some cases what Snowden did um, is is amazing in terms of what he revealed, but also troubling because it's just the same stuff that was happening in the 70s and 60s and 70s, but with fancier technology. So it's the same pattern over again. This isn't like you know of course members of the government say, well, You know the the normal a few bad apples or oops we made a mistake kind of thing it's like no this is systematically how the government operates and they've been doing it for decades and it's kind of what we expect if you centralize a lot of power and you don't have checks on it what do you expect people to do well we expect them to abuse it um that's that's the the nature of the entity and so you get the patriot act the patriot act dramatically expanded what the u.s government could do um, and of course, um, you know, there's all the famous quotes by members of Congress saying, "Well, we'll we didn't really read it," or we, "It's an emergency; we need to pass this, and we'll worry about reading it after." And and you, you realize that the supposed checks on abuses of government power are are just fake. They're they're, they're they they're not actually checking power. They're they they an opportunism. They're simply rubber stamps, um, and and you know, which they readily admit to if you if you watch closely or listen closely and so that's the world we live in today we live in a world today where the surveillance apparatus is as powerful as ever Um, that doesn't mean it's it's as repressive as in other countries and I want to make that clear because people quickly always point out well you're overstating things because we're not China we're not North Korea and it's like well on certain margins we're not but on other margins you can actually argue that it's more worrisome and, and the reason i say that is because a lot of uh, of what happens in america is is kind of wrapped up in in kind of rhetoric and rituals of democracy and freedom but this stuff is still operating in the background so so those rituals and the, that rhetoric of freedom and democracy and all that kind of masks the 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 underlying reality and um also again kind of makes people callous or 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 immune to what's going on because they're like oh that couldn't happen here we we live in a democracy we live in a free society but the the bigger risk i think is that you know all it takes is the wrong person however that's defined to get their hands on this apparatus and very bad things can happen very quickly um and you know, Frank Church. He was a senator who ran the Church Committee that I mentioned earlier. This was in the '70s. He he did a famous interview on TV where he was talking about this. And again, this is the the '70s, so the technology is not anything like it is today. You know, and he famously said, "Like, look, if if the wrong person came to power, uh, Americans would have no place to hide. They could they could get access to all of your most important information, given the apparatus." And I think it's safe to assume that. Given technological advances, what Edward Snowden has revealed, and again, that's only a slice of it, uh, things are worse now. And so, the way I always kind of the thought experiment I always give to people is you know, imagine your least favorable politician. I don't care about political party, I don't care about any of that. Think about your least favorable politician in your head and think about if that person had access to that surveillance apparatus, would you want them? running it because of course most people say well i have nothing to hide there's nothing wrong with they should be able to do it for safety and that misses the the point about liberty and freedom and the protection of those things and the accumulation of state power through time
1: yeah i i think you very much got to the to the heart of what's wrong with the surveillance state, which i agree with you is is most likely the the, the worst, um, consequences of these militarism, um, that we have at abroad that creates these new standards that we can now use at home. But I, I believe you, you've touched on some other aspects as well, besides just the surveillance state. And I think that's particular, it's particularly interesting, um, when it comes to the side of, of the justice system in general and how we've, we've created this, um, this this police state more than just how we can spy on people, but actually the methods we use on them, how we convict them and, and what we do with people um, that I think is is really um, I believe there's a quote. Uh, I don't remember who said it, but it, uh, in the Cold War as where we see a lot of this develop. um Ironically, in a, to, to topple the Soviet Union, we became more like the Soviet Union. So I wanted to kind of go into those uh, areas of where you know we we've kind of militarized our police, and a lot of that is downstream from um, these the the way we've been fighting these conflicts abroad, and the 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 new standards that that created.
0: Yeah, so you're exactly right. So we can talk about a few other manifestations of of militarism at home, and one, as you mentioned, is the militarization of police. When we refer to the militarization of police, what we mean is the adoption of techniques, mentality, and hardware of the military by domestic policing. And it's important to remember that police are meant to uphold the law. There's the kind of quote that is often associated with police and on some of their police or or used to be on some of their 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 uh, police cars on the side to serve and protect so you serve the people you protect the people that is not the purpose of the military the purpose of the military is to fight enemies destroy enemies and so on and so right off the bat you can see that when police take on a mentality of the military it shifts it's not they don't view you and i and other members, uh, private members of the populace as people that are being served and protected, but rather enemies that need combating. And you know, one of the, the kind of most blatant and obvious manifestations of this, of course, is the introduction of, of SWAT teams, the, the special weapons and tactics teams. Uh, and, and, and these started in Los Angeles in the 1960s, and now they've spread throughout the country. But the reason I say it's the most evident uh, illustration of this is because the very purpose of the SWAT team was to have a military unit on domestic soil. And, and, and so it was created by war veterans. Its very purpose was to utilize war organization and techniques. And it was supposed to only be used for, of course, like everything new that's introduced, only for extreme circumstances where regular policing can't work. Uh, of course, that, that, remember at the time this was happening, you had the race riots going on in Los Angeles. Um, which was a major driver behind this. So we need we need this special unit to help bring law and order. Of course, then they start to spread and, and the major driver behind this was the expansion of the war on drugs. And so SWAT teams became heavily involved in executing warrants tied to the war on drugs. And one of the big things that has happened with the war on drugs, again, war on drugs is, is important here, both in itself as a historical episode, but the nature of the war because it's very similar to the War on Terror, which is it's an open-ended war. Everyone's a potential suspect. Every aspect of the globe is part of the battlefield. And there's no it, there's no enemy. Enemy is drugs, just like the enemy is terror. And it's unclear what victory would look like or, or winning the war would look like. And, and the reason that's problematic is it opens the door to the use of, of those military techniques hardware and so on on all of us and we see this and perhaps the the most obvious manifestation is something called no knock warrants and and no knock warrants are warrants issued to police which are oftentimes carried out by swat units or swat units in conjunction with police and you get the idea behind it the, the as the name implies you don't have you the police don't have to announce yourself before you make entry onto the property that you are executing the warrant on and the idea is that they don't want want people flushing drugs down the toilet or destroying the evidence because if they announce themselves then before the police can get in they'll destroy the evidence well what happens well lots of things happen and all it takes is you know uh, i'm sure many of the viewers of this already have have heard or read about horror stories but you can just google no-knock raids and plenty of videos and stories will come up of going to the wrong house of they kick in the door and you know the person's sleeping and they think that someone's breaking in their house so they uh either run at the at the at the people breaking in the the police or pull a weapon on them because they think their property is being violated and they get shot and killed um you you see uh stories of children being hurt because they oftentimes will throw either smoke grenades or flash grenades into kind of jar people and they end up uh harming children just just terrible horror stories and uh more often than not the police are not held accountable because they typically have some form of immunity or the judicial system is heavily biased towards them uh and uh this just ramped up in in the in the wake of 9 11 and the uh with the war, the impetus of the the uh war on terror which were there, there were massive transfers of military equipment from the um, national government down to local police departments so you read these stories of like you know a local town in new hampshire that has uh, you know, an MRAP. So these are, these are like, uh, military vehicles that are, that you often, often see like, uh, you know, in, in pictures from Iraq and Afghanistan, or they have grenade launchers, just crazy stuff. You're like, well, we need this for extreme cases. And it's like, all right, well, how extreme, you know, you, you, it literally would need to be the equivalent of a, of a battlefield on the home front in order to do this. And then you run into all these interesting issues that people in criminal justice and elsewhere have talked about where, when members of the military have that equipment, when they take on that persona, then they're gonna act more like that. They're gonna act more like that 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 persona that is a member of the military. And that changes the nature of things. And it's, it's highly problematic um, uh, for protecting people. And, and one final thing I'll mention on this before we move on to the next topic is, you know, the, the militarization of police and the surveillance state have become intertwined. And one example of this is this uh, technology called a stingray, or or, or uh, a um, cell site simulator. It looks like a suitcase, and it mimics a cell phone tower. And, and the way cell phones work is, you know, my cell phone's right here right now. It's it's bouncing off the closest tower the signal is, and the tower presumably is owned or, or leased by Verizon, who's my carrier. But the 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 stingray serves as a fake cell phone tower. And so if the police had that, let's imagine they were driving a van up and down the street right now, outside my house, my, it would redirect my cell phone to their fake tower. They can collect information, um, who I'm texting, who I'm calling, um, other information on my cell phone and you can't discriminate. So it picks up all the cell phones in a geographic area. You can't just say, just pick up the bad person's information and no one else's. And so they're collecting information without warrants on innocent people. Most people are unaware of this. And uh, uh, that's an example of how and that that was created, by the way, for use abroad in military activities. And you can see how it migrates home and how it becomes integrated into local police departments. There's no way for for you or, or I or other private citizens to even be aware of this or to check it in any way. And uh, and so you can see how all these things become kind of intertwined. And there's other things we can talk about if it interests you civil asset forfeiture, material witness law, these type of things too.
1: Yeah, I I actually do. I'm glad you brought up civil asset for, forfeiture because I believe like this is one of those examples of where we we take a policy we had abroad and just bring it back home because we, we you can read all kinds of stories even back as far as um the First World Wars of us just, you know, seizing assets from um the Germans, um, from uh, the Japanese in World War Two, just uh, all our enemies abroad, just taking their assets and and bringing them back. But now it seems with civil asset forfeiture and some other policies, we're just this is just in a, uh, bringing it back home and using it on these enemies. Um, I, I like the way that you described the war on drugs and war on terror as uh, a war without a conception of enemies or victory. And so I, I wanted to talk about that a little bit, uh, especially because I think there's a lot of people who don't understand what it is and uh, where it came from. So if we want to go into that,
0: sure. Yeah, you're exactly right. So, so, for for decades, the U.S. government has been seizing assets of other people, and you see this right now. You know, part of sanctions, whether it's uh, against people in Russia or elsewhere in the world, is is seizing assets. And, and you can see why people do that. They want to punish people. That's the very point of it for, for a state entity, the U.S. government in this case, to take people's stuff in order to punish them or get them to change their behavior. So that's the purpose behind it. And You say a lot of people say, well, that's good. You know, again, use this against bad people and you can use it for good. Well, that sounds nice until it's used against you. Then it's not so nice. And assuming you haven't done anything wrong, it's even worse. And so civil asset forfeiture in the broadest sense to start broad and then we'll narrow down is the process through which law enforcement takes or seizes assets from someone who is suspected of illegal activity and, and, and suspected is the key word here, because the way it works domestically under civil asset forfeiture laws, they are people are suspected of illegal legal activity, but they have not been charged with a crime. So suspected, but not charged or found guilty. So why is this problematic? Well, we'll come to that in a moment. But before doing so, let me just say domestically, these laws do have a history. Uh, so, so during the Prohibition Era in the United States, so what's that, 1920s, they were used. Um, not as certainly as much as they were today, but they were used um, to combat organized crime. And they were used uh, in the 70s sparingly here and there throughout the country to combat organized crime. But really where they took off was, again, as part of the war on drugs. And so, in the '80s, what you get is something called the Comprehensive Crime Control Act, which was passed in the in the mid 1980s, and that created something called the Equitable Sharing Program. And the Equitable Program, uh, equ- Equitable Sharing Program, if if you know today, it's kind of known by the term policing for profit, or or, or profit sharing among the police. And what happens is. Um, you seize assets, or, or or a police officer or a law enforcement officer seizes assets, and then they basically split the value of those assets. Some go to the federal level, some remain in the at the um, private level. The problem with this is it incentivizes taking. So the goal was to 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 kind of incentivize collaboration between the state and federal governments, and it certainly did. But really, what it did was incentivize policing for profit, because you can get revenue for your budget. By taking stuff from private people, and you don't have to charge them with a crime, or, uh, or, or, or uh, they don't have to be found guilty of anything. They, they are presumed guilty by the fact that the law officer who executes the seizure of assets determines theirs. So they have complete discretionary power, and then the onus is on the citizen to get their assets back. So it like completely flips over the logic of due process the way most of us think about it, which is that you are innocent until proven guilty. Members of the government cannot lock you up. They cannot take your stuff simply because they don't like you or, or, or you don't or you don't look at them. You know, you look at them the wrong way. That's not, at least in principle, allowed in a free society. And so uh, what happens? Well, again, during the war on terror, this ramps up. A- and, uh, you know, again, you can look at uh, Washington Post, New York Times. They've all done stories on this. And you, 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 what you get is case after case of innocent, ordinary people who, whose lives are destroyed. And, and so, and these are not one-off things. These happen all the time. Let me provide some examples. You know, you, you, you read these stories of especially these small businesses. So imagine a family-owned diner, restaurant, small-scale operation, and it's, it's, it's a cash-operated business. All right, so so it's cash operated, and they don't have a huge endowment, meaning they're 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 not a multi-million dollar corporation. They're they're operating week to week in terms of being able to cover their bills. All right, so so they go to deposit their money in the bank once a week, and they're driving down the highway, and they have I'm making this up six thousand dollars with them, and a cop stops them. Do you have any money? And of course they're innocent; they haven't done anything wrong. Yeah, you know I'm I have six thousand dollars. Uh, why do you have $6,000? Who carries $6,000? That's very suspicious. I'm taking your $6,000 because only a suspicious person carry $6,000. And then they take it. And then the onus is on the small business owner to get their money back, to get their property back. But but this poses a problem for, for two reasons. Uh, number one, um, it poses a problem because these businesses don't have a huge buffer in terms of savings to launch a defense against the state. Second of all, the state has, even if you do have resources, has a significant amount of resources compared to private people for the most part, because they are able to leverage tax revenue where you and I as private citizens are not. And so fighting the state to get your resources back is extremely difficult to do. It's not impossible, there are organizations too, like the Institute for Justice and organizations like that that help people, but it is daunting. It is extremely daunting, and um, uh, again, the people who end up getting their assets back—it's not like you can seek recourse against the law enforcement officers. So the the incentives are, are completely perverse in favor of taking stuff from from innocent people. Uh, and uh, again, you know, according to to, to some of these uh, studies, since uh, 2014, um, you know, billions of dollars—it's like two and a half billion dollars. Um, have been uh, uh, filtered through the equitable sharing program from, from assets that are received. Now, some of that is for criminal behavior, uh, but, but much of it is not. And, and that's the problem. And and again, the way a, a system of due process is set up is innocent until proven guilty. That means that some people who are guilty are going to slip through the cracks. But we bias the system in, form, in in terms of the innocent because we don't want gross violations of people's person and property who are innocent. <laughs> and civil asset forfeiture flips that over and it significantly gives discretionary power to the law enforcement agencies at the expense of private power, and that's the concern. Um, and again, for, for many, many people don't think about this because they say it can never happen to me, but it can happen to you, it can happen to anyone because it's, it you know, typically bad people, criminals don't wear a name badge that says criminal, and this is purely based on the interpretation by law enforcement officers, and so, that's the concern, and that is a, a kind of hidden um, cost of the expansion of state power that already existed the the residue was there from from the past going all the way back to prohibition as I talked about, but the war on terror really kicked in the door that opened up the ability of law enforcement to do this
1: yeah i I, I think that you're definitely right about that and um, that you know the war on terror has really been um, an excuse to expropriate policies that we had for foreign policy and make it into domestic policy um but i think an avenue that i i think is not explored um enough but but you i definitely have seen you talk about is kind of how are they getting away with this how are they being able to actually expropriate this um this policy what avenues are they using in you know how are we really seeing this happen in real time and um kind of the ways that, that they, the, the government uses to kind of get these policies downstream into, um, domestic policy.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, the the main, ultimately I am of the position that all government power is a function of the citizenry. So I, I I, and there's disagree, disagreement on this, uh, the magnitudes of this. So I I don't want to make it sound like this is the only way to think about it, but my my own view of governments in general is that they drive all their power from the citizenry that that's even the most totalitarian state in other words if if enough of the citizen citizenry pushed back against government they couldn't do what they do and there'd be no way to control all of them and so governments all governments require acquiescence on the part of the citizenry and of course they invest significant amounts of resources both in terms of physically repressing people but more importantly, again, even in totalitarian regimes, and and in democracies, they invest a significant amount of resources in habituation in terms of, of of creating the habit of dependency on government. And this is what I was saying at the beginning is kind of the foundation of all this. It's 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 the citizenry saying, well, we need government to do certain things because otherwise it's anarchy, it's chaos and violence. And you know, we live in a Hobbesian world. And if government here wasn't here to protect us, everything would go to hell instantaneously or, or close to instantaneously. And and when you think that way, it automatically creates a dependency effect. You become dependent on government and you become a willing participant. You 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 it turns into a system of of parentalism. Where government takes on this role of being a parent that that protects you, like in the private areas of life, a parent would take care of a child because they worry about them running out in the middle of the road or hurting themselves because they don't know better. And that disarms private people from being critical of their government. Now, given that, it's just then a matter of what is acceptable and what people can get away with. And, and, and what I mean by that is it's not like, you know, there are certain things in all societies where if government did them, there would be massive blowback against government. And so they tend to avoid those things. Not always, but they tend to. So it's a matter of figuring out what they can get away with. But one of the kind of curses of technology as you and I were discussing earlier when we talked about surveillance, is it allows people to hide stuff. So you can see, you know, if there if there were troops walking down the street, We could observe that directly, but it's impossible to observe the surveillance state. This is why whistleblowers are so important. The only way you and I as private members of the populace get information about it is when whistleblowers release it. Members of Congress and congressional oversight, they don't know what's going on because they are usually dependent on members of the national security state to provide them about information about what the security state is doing. And even if they were aware, there's very little pushback against it um for a variety of reasons and so that's what makes i think it makes it so difficult is we don't observe much of what they do but even when we do observe it people are in my estimation people are just either indifferent or they ask for it they again they think this is the only this is the only way to do things it's the only way to organize things the only way to have order and or they assume that if government is doing it that it must be good. And if you look, for instance, at, in America at least, I don't know about other countries, if you look at America and you look at public opinion polls about public institutions, uh, this is back to, I, I know going back at least when Trump was president, because um, I, I, I just remember looking at them, the president, so the executive branch in Congress get very low public approval ratings in terms of trust. And I'm, not, I'm not talking about people per se, just do you trust the executive branch, do you trust the congressional branch, very low. Uh, Supreme Court's higher. I'm sure that's lower now, but it's it's higher. And the highest was the military. Military institutions, it was something like, I forget exactly, it was like in the 80s um, percentile I'm talking about. So an enormous percentage of respondents, I'm assuming it was a representative sample that was taken for that, are trusting of military institutions. And A lot of people say well that's good that unifies the country that's that you know a lot of people associate that with patriotism in the nation state but one of the risks of that of course is because is that people become too trusting and and which creates space for them to abuse that power and so you get that ideological element then you get the human capital that is associated with engaging in militarism so human capital is just the skills we have in order to be effective at, at of being an agent of social control abroad you develop certain skills, just like I develop skills as a professor or someone who is an analyst of finance, develop skills. All of us develop skills in life, depending on the experiences we have. Those skills just don't disappear. So when people are done engaging in foreign affairs, they come back home. Some of them stay in government. Some of them become military contractors. Some of them go into government, other roles in government. Some, of course, just integrate back in the normal private life. But those who do go into contracting or the national security sector, they take the skills they've learned abroad. And bring them home and they integrate them and it doesn't require any kind of nefarious motivations so this isn't like some grand conspiracy theory of people sitting in the back room like how do i take over america and make it a police state it is you are what you experience you are the skills. if you normalize in your life and you become really good at surveillance if you become really good at developing technologies to control people that's what you're gonna do. Those are the skills you're gonna sell. If you're a military contractor, you need to offer a product to the people you are contracting with. The product you typically offer is whatever it is you're good at, whether it is physical hardware, whether it is training, uh, training other people, or whatever it is, that's what you're gonna do. And that's no different than any other walk of life. The difference in terms of offering skills that are rewarded, the difference is the outcome of them, which is that in other areas of life, In in the private market, for instance, we talk about offering skills that improve the general welfare of society through value-added goods and services. In the context of government, we're talking about expansions in government power and scale and scope, which can reduce individual liberties. And then, of course, that's complemented by the physical capital that's developed abroad. We talked about the stingrays for surveillance, the military hardware. Another thing we haven't talked too much about uh, is things like drones, which can be used for surveillance as well. And again, all of these technologies, what we what economists call physical capital, the physical items and inputs that allow us to carry out various tasks, makes government more efficient at not just controlling people abroad, but also people domestically as well.
1: Yeah, I, I think you certainly got got it there and, and identified where this is coming from and how they're actually being able to accomplish these goals. But uh, the thing I kind of wanted to end on in is we talk a lot about very well-established things that and consequences that militarism has created, but this is an ever-evolving system, and I think we're starting to see new developments in um, the way that we're exporting foreign policy into domestic policy, and I think we're particularly seeing that with um, the Ukraine conflict. And so I wanted to talk about that a little bit and in, in get your estimates estimation of like the developments that are happening um in this avenue because of this conflict and and what those are and their consequences
0: yeah well i mean it's it's ongoing and evolving so it's hard you know i, I always uh, in terms of outcomes in, in ukraine i'm always very hesitant and not that you were asking this but uh you know it's funny to listen to people make predictions and then twist their predictions and uh you know it's like economists who predict the stock market it's uh somewhat silly but it, it also is good for clickbait, I guess. But in any case, I mean, look, you you have a situation. I I think there's a couple issues. My my biggest concern with the situation in in Ukraine is that people forgot Afghanistan almost instantaneously. And so you get the exit from Afghanistan. So in my estimation, kudos to the Biden administration for finally getting us out. Of course, it was chaotic getting out. It was always going to be chaotic getting out. There was no it's not like you're just going to walk out and be like, hey, you know, now it's a liberal democracy and we can just walk out. It was never going to be that way, which is why Trump couldn't get out because they, they realized the, the chaos of it, even though he tried. So in any case, I, at the moment, I was like, all right, this might be a good thing because people might actually start to pay attention to how dysfunctional these interventions are because it was right in front of us. It literally was hitting us in the face. general american populace how how chaotic and dysfunctional this is but then of course russia invades ukraine the the united states engages in what i consider to be a proxy war with russia through the provision of intelligence arms and so on and everyone forgets about that it's like that afghanistan what like i don't i don't remember that even though it was what a year a year ago a year and a half ago in any case that's the the bigger thing and now uh, you're reading these things like this is going to define farm u.s foreign policy for the next decade or two decades, we have to pivot to Russia and China. And we have to strategically arm groups in those regions in order to counter their power and all this. And, and it is, here's why, why, why it worries me is because it elevates, it reinforces what's already existed. So in some sense, it's not new, but what it does, all of this does is it elevates militarism. It views the world as a the, 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 the animating force behind this worldview. I'm going to call it the, the worldview of the American empire. That that is that that America has to maintain this expansive apparatus, both at home and abroad, because that's the only way we can have world order and peace. And that at the core of that is illiberalism. It's it's a it's a liberal empire that's carried out through illiberal means, um, and both in in terms of the 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 mentality, the techniques, and the hardware that's utilized. And the the one of the many risks is it elevates. Warfare, it elevates militarism. The way you interact with people is not through, let's sit down and figure this out because we can coexist together. Even if I might disagree with you on certain things, it's that it's a zero, it's a negative sum world, actually not zero sum, negative sum. It is someone wins, someone else loses. It's negative sum because you have to spend resources in order to win. So it's not just moving stuff around zero sum. And that is problematic because when you take on that mentality, that is that militarism is the only way it's going to lead to military action it's going to lead to war it's going to lead to conflict and there is as we have been talking about no way that can stay abroad it's going to come home and that is the that is the concern in addition to other things what other things uh nuclear war being one of them so now we're not talking anymore about you know combating insurgent groups In the middle east even though we're still doing that as well we're talking about engaging in brinksmanship with nuclear powers and again many people poo poo this they'll say things like oh you know it would never come to that you know that's silly you're overstating your fear-mongering well there's a reason countries have nuclear weapons um and uh uh Nuclear weapons only work to deter if there's a positive probability that you will use them. That's the only way deterrence can work. If, if there was zero probability you're going to use them, they wouldn't deter because no one would believe you're going to use them. So there has to be some positive probability. And you say, well, they'll only use them if someone else uses them. Well, then go look at history. There are so many near misses due to human error because, of course, human beings are engaged are, are involved in command and control over nuclear weapons, all it takes is some technological glitch or human error, judgment error. And before you know it, we're we're nuclear, we're nuclear war. So that's my other concern. And the final concern I'll raise, and there's others as well, but but for sake of time, I'll mention one more. The US government is injecting an enormous amount of weapons into Ukraine. Enormous amount of weapons. And many people support this because they say, okay somehow Ukraine has become the beacon of democracy and freedom in the world. So you need to support them at all costs. And they're going to push back on Russia. And that at the moment seems to be working. So, okay. But one of the things that has been raised, although not as a focal point, is that no one is tracking where these arms are going. And Ukraine is not nearly the beacon of freedom and democracy, if you read about it, that many people purport it to be. In other words, there is corruption, there are a very a variety of con- contesting groups of, of, of people competing for power politically. Um, some of those are formerly political parties, others are groups um, who now have weapons. And one of the real concerns is what's going to happen to all these weapons, both right now, but also over the coming months and years. And not long ago, we should remember um, ISIS in Iraq, uh, was getting a hold of US weapons uh, and using those weapons to uh, uh, carry out brutal activities against people. And so it's not that, that weapon transfers can't help people. Of course they can. It's that oftentimes they end up through time in the hands of uh, questionable people at best, if not terrible people. And, and they, the terrible people can do terrible things when they have advanced weaponry. And so that's the other concern I have with that. And so I'm curious, of course, like everyone, to see how it plays out. I have no idea how it will all play out. But uh, those are a couple of the concerns I have. And uh, unfortunately, I I see Russia and China being used as justification for continued expansions in in the national security state, both abroad and at home. One area we see that at home, by the way, is an economic activity. So we can't, we have to use protectionist measures to trade against, uh, to block them for strategic purposes, but also all these concerns about technology and cyber warfare and all these things. So it just offers more entry points for the U.S. government to exert its control over technology companies and technology products in the name of national security.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think you've, you've definitely brought up some places that are definitely... Um... Wants to look out for and definitely something to be looking into as we move forward, uh, especially with this conflict. Um, but I wanted to thank you so much for, uh, coming on to discuss all this cause I think it's very important. So I wanted to give you the floor now to promote anything you wanted to promote to my audience that you think you, they need to hear, um, any projects you have going on, anything you want them to be aware of.
0: Well, thank you, and, and let me first thank you for taking the time to to speak with me. These these are issues, obviously, of, of great importance, but also ones that I care about. So I, I appreciate the opportunity to speak to, to speak with you. I'll just mention this: I have a book coming out in early December. It's called In Search of Monsters to Destroy. Um, the subtitle is The Folly of American Empire and, and Past to Peace. And anyone interested in the topics we've been talking about today, in the downside and costs and risks of the expansive expansive american empire and the risks it poses to liberty and and peace and prosperity at home and abroad i think will find it of interest it's written in a very uh intended to be written in a very accessible way for for readers of all different backgrounds and interests to to access and in the in the concluding chapter i, I offer an alternative to american empire um that is i believe grounded in in individual freedom and and liberty and so uh anyone who's interested in what you and i have discussed here uh might be interested in that and of course i have have numerous other books prior to that one on on propaganda called manufacturing militarism one called tyranny comes home that talks about many of the things you and i were discussing today the surveillance state militarization of police and this is a series of books i've been working on to explore the various nuances and operation and, and kind of costs of of american empire in a militaristic foreign policy so thank you very much for the opportunity to speak with you today
1: yeah no problem and I'll make sure that uh, people get to your uh, links in the description as well I'll make sure to uh, keep people aware of your book coming out uh, because I'm very excited for that and uh, maybe I'll have you back on when it comes out so we can talk about uh, some talk about this again but uh, I thank you so much for coming on and I hope um, I hope to have you on again at some time
0: Well, thank you, Peyton. I appreciate it.
1: All right. And uh, until next time, everyone.
0: We must stop the terror. I call upon all nations to do everything they can to stop these terrorist killers. Thank you. Now watch this drive.